As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. This week's podcast is brought to you in part by Bill Taylor Enterprises. BTE is a manufacturing, design, and support company that specializes in high-performance automatic transmission assemblies and components for drag racing, off-road, marine, and street performance. Stay tuned to learn more about BTE's tune-up services. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in Sportsman Drag Racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss Chet Dragon and Chris Gerritsen. In fact, in this week's episode, we will not just be discussing Chris Gerritsen. I will be sitting down for a long overdue talk with the man, the myth, the legend, Chris Gerritsen himself. I'm solo this episode, no Big Jed. Big Jed will be doing some interviews of his own, so look forward to those coming up in the near future. But uh, today I got to sit down for the man that we've been talking about off and on for the last 18 months here on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. And just as a little bit of history, Chris and I discussed this in his interview, but the first discussion that Jed and I had about Chris Gerritsen was on an episode last season. Kevin McKenna joined us, and if you remember, longtime listeners will be familiar with this. Jed, Kevin, and myself had our picks to win the 2018 National Championships in the NHRA Sportsman categories. We each picked our roster early in the season, and then uh, mid-year, we went back through and kind of did a redraft, and it was at that point that I picked up Chris Gerritsen. And I said, when I picked him up, I don't even know who Chris Gerritsen is, but he had a score that was conducive 
to make an run at the national championship. He did just that. He ended up finishing sixth in the world in 2018. But <laughs> shortly after making my pick, I was inundated with emails, with texts, with messages saying, do you realize what you just picked? And there's pictures of Chris's car. And that was at that point that I realized that my pick to win the national championship was a, at the time, 69-year-old man driving a 20-plus-year-old dragster with airplane front tires that goes 890 at 120 miles an hour. And I'll be completely honest, my first thought was, what have I gotten myself into? Now, we've had our fun at Chris Gerritsen's expense, but I've also used Chris as an example quite repeatedly over the last year-plus to prove a point, the point being that the basis of bracket racing, the basis of sportsman racing in general, and that is that you don't have to spend the most money in order to be successful. You don't have to outspend your competition, and you don't have to go about your racing in a quote-unquote unconventional way in order to have success. Chris Gerritsen does not have the most expensive superclass car by any stretch of the imagination. And to say that he goes about his business in an unconventional way is a bit of an understatement. In today's conversation, I got to sit down with Chris and we started slow. We talked a little bit about his racing background and how he was first introduced to the sport and got into it. But as the conversation went on, we got into some really great stuff, and hopefully there is a morsel or two at the very minimum that you can take from this conversation that will stick with you. The limited time that I've got to spend with Chris, I've got more than a morsel or two that will stick with me. Again, the takeaway here is that Chris Gerritsen, last season, top 10 nationally in Supercom. He's on pace to do it again. It wasn't just a complete flash in the pan. Chris is putting up another monster score this season. I'm very much in contention to, to finish in the top 10 once again. And if, in case you missed it earlier, Chris Gerritsen's 70 years old. It is rare that a racer peaks, so to speak, at his age. And as you get into Chris's story, which again, he tells a little bit later on in this interview you realize how awesome a story it is, what he's been through to get to where he is, his perspective on life in general, and the unique opportunity that he's got to race and do something that he loves. It's really inspirational, and I hope that it touches you in the same way. And then towards the end of this interview, we also get a little bit more inside baseball, so to speak, as to the dynamics and the strategy that goes into his unconventional setup, right? Because there is a method to the madness. And when you step back and remove yourself from it just briefly, it makes a lot of sense. So without further ado, I will jump right in to today's conversation with Chris Gerritsen. It's time for The Big Interview on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. All right, here we go. This has probably been a year plus in the making, but I am joined now by the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, Chris Gerritsen. And Chris, I think it's fair to say that over the course of the last year plus, I have become your number one fan. 
It didn't necessarily start out that way. Like I was a little bit tongue in cheek at first. I know you recall because we had a little conversation uh, at Indy. But the first time that I think we mentioned your name on the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast, Kevin McKenna had come on. We were drafting our, our teams for who we thought would win the 2018 World Championship. And I picked up Chris Garrettson and I even said it live in real time on the episode. Like, I have no idea who Chris Garrettson is, but he's got a really good score. I think he can win the championship. So I didn't know who you were, didn't know where you came from. Who are you and where did you come from? <laughs> Basically, I'm the little known racer from Delaware behind Danny Bastinelli. It's <laughs> a uh, big shadow. I mean, yeah, you know, everybody knows Danny. But I mean, it's years ago, I, I used to race with a, uh, a guy, had a Seagas Anglia guy named Ross Donovan bent bolt car out of Delaware just used to go this is back in the 60s we used to go racing and in the 70s he built a Vega and I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Vegas so see I knew there was a reason we'd get along yeah yeah and then I had a I had a bigger street Vega which is you know not anything but then I had a I guess it was like 1987 after I had had started a business, a muffler shop in, you know, muffler shop in uh, Ellesmere. I ended up seeing a Vega in, uh, by a guy named, uh, oh, geez, I couldn't remember him the other day. And I can, uh, Rod Snyder from uh, Springfield, Illinois. And it was in Dragster for sale. And it ended up, I, I ended up calling him, ended up buying the car. It was pro-streeted. He did most of the work in his uh, garage. And I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was like, you know, the, the neatest thing I've seen. It was, like I said, it was 1987. Drove out to Springfield, picked it up, brought it back. Well, by the time I got it back and back to the muffler shop and started playing with it, it was in Carcraft Magazine, but it was in his name. And, you know, people asked me, and I'm going, like, you know, I said, you know, the car I own now is in Carcraft magazine and they're going, Oh wow. You know? And I said, well, I didn't do it. You know, I just bought the thing. And that's, that was, uh, you know, what started the, the love affair with, you know, the Vegas and all that kind of stuff. And then I uh, was going along, you know, after uh, the muffler shop and I ended up getting to the point where I was too chicken to have the rotator cuff done on my shoulders and because uh, I had been working overhead in the Volkswagen dealership is where I really started doing cars and all that stuff. Used to do the engines and transmissions and stuff like that. And I, like I say, I just got chicken and I couldn't work overhead. And by the time I did what I figured, well, and I ended up selling the business to one of the guys that worked for me, which was one of the biggest dumber moves I've made. What, what was the time frame of that? That was 1991. I went to work for the guy who owned the Volkswagen dealership that I worked at in 81. And, and uh, I ended up you know, buying the business then in 81 from him. And then I worked it until like 91 or something like that. And then I sold it to the other guy, financed it for him like the other guy did for me. Then I went back to driving a tractor trailer. I figured if I was sitting down all the time, I couldn't hurt my shoulders. And, and like I said, I was just chicken. 
to, uh, you know, not get the surgery done, but, you know, just worked at the different things and really didn't do a whole lot. But other than, you know, just drive the truck, you know, I used to drive California and Oregon, Washington state, mm-hmm. all over hauling produce and all that kind of stuff. I guess it was like after that, I always liked the roadsters. I really wanted a roadster, but at the time, I think Warren Brogy was the only one that, you know, made roadsters. And I, I sat in a friend of mine's had one, and I just couldn't get over that uh, leg over the hump deal. Yeah, those were awkward, right? And I mean, back then, you know, uh, S&W and, and uh, the people down south weren't making any roadsters yet, so... And I just couldn't do it. So I had met Ed Quay a long time ago in like 71 when he built this other, I guess it was the second car after Jenkins's first Vega that Walt Weenie at S&W built with Quay there. And I ended up buying a brand new Quay car, his solid car back then, a supercar, in like 92, put it on. Uh, Brought it home, just a bare chassis, wired it, plumbed it. I mean, it's not the quality, the the work that they people do now with the wiring and all that stuff. I mean, that's like unbelievable, the, the jobs and all that stuff that they do on the wiring. And got it to the track, and I took the, the motor out of the Pro Street Vega I had, put it in there, and it ran like 940s. It was a small block. And, you know, I just kept pepping it up and pepping it up a little bit each time until I got, I guess, the first real super comp race I went to was the Pennsylvania Dutch Classic in 93. And it, it's comical because I went up there on Saturday and uh, ran two runs in the car, ran 883 twice in a row. And I'm going like, wow how am I going to slow this thing down now to do this? And I'm going like, and I'm thinking, I'm going like, oh, I forgot. When I had the car made, Ed made a wing for the car. Well, I had run the car a few times with the wing, and the wing was worth 700. So I'm going like, there it is. So I came home that night, came back up Sunday morning, put the, the wing on, went out first round, car went 890 with a five first round flat out you know that's you know it's just all it had so when we were there running the car everybody came over and they were looking under the carburetor and they're going like well where's the throttle stop and i just like pointed at the wing (laughs) (laughs) and they and they said what i said oh yeah we're just changing the attack angle on the the wing to slow it down or speed it up or this that that and then by the time the final came, and I ended up going to the final round, the Super Comp Circuit race is the Mid-Atlantic now that used to be just called the Super Comp. I forget what it was called then. But Tom I had to run a guy, Tom Boyle, with a Brokey Roadster in the final. And he had one of the carburetors that you just dial the, the secondary uh, vacuum-operated thing on because back then you could run like a, I have a 20 or 25 light and run like 92 or 93 and still went rounds. I'm going like went to the final and I lost by five thousandths of a second. And, you know, he was just, you know, I was new. He was better. And he just used me up at the finish line and took the finish line and 
ended up he won like five thousand dollars for winning the circuit and i'm i'm just happy to be in the final so that's the origins of your super comp competition that's 26 years ago you took an unconventional means to success you had competitors shaking their head that seems to be a trend that continues unconventional (laughs) means to success competitors shaking their head as we go back to you know after that episode of the podcast where okay i've I've drafted chris garrett's on my team and then i begin to get a flood of messages and emails and and, in pictures of your car and i see this older underpowered dragster the airplane front tires. And I'll be honest, the first thought that comes in my head is, what have I gotten myself into here, right? So exactly. Exactly. walk me through a little bit your combination. Now, this is not the same Ed Quake car that you just talked about that you purchased new in 92, is it? No, that one was a solid car. This one I bought a guy, Ed Quay, the, the car I have now was Ed Quay's personal car. Uh, was one that they had, they brought it out as a solid car, the Bracketeer. I think it was in like 95. And they ran that Bobby, the guy that uh, Bobby Orndorf, Overdorf, that uh, owns Quays now because Ed's retired. He drove it for a while and then they took it back and they four linked the car. And then Bobby drove it. Sh- just sparingly and then bob couldn't drive it anymore so ed started driving it and this is the car that i think ed won moroso with it he won a couple other races with it i mean he did good with it and then he sold it to a guy that had it for two years and only had 20 runs on it he had this uh real fast race crafter small block in it that would run like 750s all the time and sort of like almost a comp motor and then it he decided to sell it and he wanted to get another car so i said the one guy tom boyle was a friend of mine he says if you don't buy this car you're crazy so i said okay so i i ended up buying the car i give 13 grand for it and it came with no engine or trans another set of slicks another a rear and some other thing hood scoop and yada yada and that was 2001 and the car ed had it it was like blacked out stealth bomber looking thing because ed used to do a lot of night racing up at maple grove so i and then the other guy he had painted it and shined it to the color it is and i've had it this long and i have i feel bad saying this i've never painted it or changed the color and i and one of the reasons I did that, because on the side where it says Garrett's and racing on the side of it, I used to tease Ed and I said, you know, Ed, I could take that that off and we could put Ed Quay race cars right back on there and it looked like yours again. But he, you know, he said, I don't want that thing back. You know, but, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it, and I, t- I used to tease him. I said, Ed, I said, I hope you didn't use up all the winning out of this thing so I maybe win a race or two. He said, oh, there's, there's plenty of winning left in that car. And it, I mean, like I say, it's, it's been a deadly car. I mean, he had a, a big block in it. And when I got it originally, I had a 400 small block that I ran in the car for a while. And it just didn't react as good as it did with him. And I changed the rear springs on it to, on the shock 
Fox and, you know, did it, he set it up and everything, but it's still just, you know, it, it needed more power. And I've never been a, a power hungry, go fast person with, you know, I basically, I run as fast as my wallet will let me. And, um, never, I said, if I can't buy it and pay cash for it, I don't need it. And I mean, it's, it's, it's nice to go fast, but uh, I mean, it's costly to go fast anymore. No question. Yes. Uh, now, Chris, you were prior to last season's success, and we've alluded to this on the podcast before as well. You were essentially off the grid. And now that I've come to know you a little bit, I realize that there's a really good reason for that. You said you purchased the car that you're driving now in 2001. Obviously, it's taken on a couple of different iterations, but essentially the same car, a similar combination, small block to big block at some point. Talk to me a little bit about where you were for the the years prior to 2018 and how things really started coming together for you last season. Yeah, well, after, when 2001, when I bought the car, I, you know, like I said, I had a small block in it, and then I I had that, I guess it was about a year or so I had that in there. And then the guy across the street from me has a super street car a guy named Mario DiTidorio. And he finished, uh, I think third in division one year. And he had a, it's a 69 Nova and he always had a 461 in it. And he, he was always trying to get the thing to react on the four tenths tree because that's what they had back then. Well, he changed this, he changed that, and he was having all kinds of trouble getting the thing to react. And he finally got the thing to react on the four-tenths tree, and they changed it that year to a five-tenths tree. And he got so mad that he quit racing for like five years. Well, he, he still doesn't race now. And the car was sitting there, and I'm going like, Hey, Mario, what the, because he always used to tell me, oh, you put my motor in your car, it'll really go good. And I go like, okay, now's your chance. How much you want for the motor? I'll buy it. When I had the 400 in it, it got down to like eight, I guess like 835, 840, something like that. So I said, okay. So he brought his car across the street into my garage. We pulled the motor out, took it out, ended up putting it in, in the, the dragster. and. It was on gas, and now it's going to be heavier because it's an iron-headed big block. It's like an LS6. We put the motor in there. I take it down to Cecil County, run the car. The car runs 840s, <laughs> almost exactly <laughs> with the 400. And I brought him back the time slip. He says, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that. I'm like, well, yeah, you know, because it's a small block and all that stuff. So I, and then I just started pepping it up a little bit. I, you know, I took the 990 heads off. I called Brodix and talked to the guys down there and they made me a set of BB2 pluses that were, I think they were like about 109 cc's. They were angle milled, CNC the chambers, didn't do the intake runners and all, all that kind of stuff. And then they, uh, then the best part about it was they put the bolt holes in last so that when they angle milled it to get the CCs down, you don't have to worry about the bolt holes being cockeyed. And then the, uh, the intake was matched to the, um, they remachined it to normal, 
you know, so everything, the gaskets fit, everything. Well, I put that on there. All of a sudden, the car goes out, goes 816, like 160. I think it was like 165, something like that, just from changing the cylinder heads. Is that about what the car is capable of today? On a good day, if you don't consider the extra weight that I've brought into the cockpit, (laughs) 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 it's... so when I put the, the motor that's in it right now, when I put it together and Gil Davis from Davis Racing Engines did the motor, I did the cylinder heads. It ran 803, 165 at its best day down at uh, Cecil County. And I mean, it's like I say, it's not a killer motor. And like last year with as everywhere I went, there was like pretty good air, like a game. Gainesville when I went six rounds and then Virginia when I won the divisional race the air was like 30 point something every place I went it was good so I went to Maple Grove and it was like 29 30 and I'm going like my motor doesn't like bad air I mean and now this year everywhere I go it's been like cruddy air and it's like oh man this thing so I've had to modify what I did last year with set and stop and all that other things that go with it that has been more of a, a another learning experience this year rather than what just go off of what I was doing last year. I know, Chris, with this combination, I mean, you've accumulated data for well over a decade at this point, but there was a time where racing was the farthest thing from your mind. Like 2018 really kind of brought you back into competition and in the super ranks consistently no yeah because like until i guess i did the super comp until about 2002 and then um i decided with a little help from one of the nhra people that i didn't want to do this anymore because they there was a little incident at cecil county not to bust anybody's chops but there was a friend of mine, John Martin, and I were having a race. And it was one of the first races I was running the Super Comp deal with the new car. And the starter basically didn't reset the tree. And we were both up on the chips, waiting and waiting and waiting. And I let mine down. And I'm going like, wait a minute, I've had this happen to me before. So I put the motor up, the tree came on and they said, no, it didn't. And I went, I still remember what three lights looked like. And I went down. We had to run it over. John Martin won. Uh, And it's no big deal. But I was told, take a hike. This is the deal. And, you know, I just wanted somebody to say that, okay, we screwed up. We're sorry. but And this is what is going to happen. And, and, you know, you lost. And that's the thing. And I was like, okay. So I decided to do that. and And I said, fine. And in 2003, I started bracket racing down at Cecil County. And gotcha. So that experience soured you on NHRA competition for a number of years, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. basically. You know, you know, it leaves that, that wacky taste in your mouth, and it takes you a while to drink Mountain Dew and that kind of stuff to get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it's one of those things. It was unfortunate, but it happened. And, and uh, you know. So I said, okay, but that that NHRA guy is not here anymore. He's out working in the safety safari now. And if you 
know anything about the safari, you'll know who it was that said it. But uh, I, I don't have any animosity against him. It's just like, yeah, you know, they could have done it like everything. They could have done it just a little bit better than they did, you know, and that was fine. So, but I like started bracket racing because I, I never really started racing period until I was 44 when I built the car in 92. I mean, I had run street cars at races and that kind of stuff, but not really a race car. So I said, you know, we just decided to go bracket racing because I, you know, I didn't have the experience. These kids that come up nowadays through junior dragsters and, and all this other stuff. I mean, they just wear me out, you know, with the, how good they are, the laps they can do, how they can see the finish line and judge and hand-eye coordination. And they're just one thing after another. It's just like, gosh, you know, it's like, heck, I can't. I can't imagine doing all this stuff, you know, doing two and three things like that, judging me, them, the finish line, make a decision. I'm going like, that is way too much stuff going on in my head to, to, you know, do it right half the time. A few years after running bracket races, I finished third in the, in the, uh, in the points at Cecil County one year. And then the next year I started tinkering changing this, trying that. And I ended up finished 17th two times and went to the bracket finals, didn't do anything real spectacular. And then, then a friend of mine, BJ Bob Keister from Vineland, who has the Mid-Atlantic Dotnani Association, his son does, and he's president. And uh, he kept, he always ran a top end stop. And I kept telling Bob, I said, you can't, change the first number. I said, you got to leave that one alone. And then you modify the last one. And when they started doing it, they just ran it out the back door. And I'm going like, you can't do that. I said, yeah, once in a while, you will stumble upon it. You might hit it if the air doesn't change, but a day-to-day race, like a three-day race from a divisional. I said, you just, you're just searching because the air gets better. The RPM on the stop goes up. I said, you go fast, the air gets bad, you go slow. And I mean, it's a pain. So he came down to Cecil County one week, uh, Saturday, I guess it was. And I said, Bob, I'm coming down there. I'm going to prove to you what I'm saying. And he's all skeptical. And so I said, okay, whatever. So we went down there. Finally, we got the, how the um, throttle stop controller works. And we set the RPM on the stop and went out there. Well, he went like, I think it was like 980 and run super gas in his wagon. And he went like 970 something the first time run. And he said, I, he looked at me like in skepticism as usual. And I said, don't worry about it. I said, Here, now put these numbers in, go make another pass. And he went out there and made another pass. And I said, I said, it might run about 10 flat. He said, okay. So it went out and went 10 flat with a three. And he looked, now he's looking at me. I wonder, I didn't bring it back. I do the numbers thing. And I said, here, go put this number in it and uh, go out there and make a pass. Well, he goes up there, plays around a little bit. They had a little oil down or something. Gar goes out and runs 990 with a three on the third pass. He comes back and he looks at me. He says, how'd you do that? And I'm going like, uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty, you know, if you just, because of the way I did it, 
And he said, wow. And so, so then it was like, it's been like three years ago or so. I uh, started helping him out. And, and, you know, it's. And at that point, how long had you been utilizing a, a top end stop setup of your own or had you? Well, basically the one friend of mine, Bob Kodadak from family software, he and I have always done, he ran a small block. He won, I think it was Atlanta in either 95 or 96 with a top end stop. And, you know, he's got so many things with like one time Edmund Richardson came over and he's sitting in the car and Edmund looked down and he said, well, Bob, what's it going to be this week? And, it, and he says, is it going to be a beginning or is it going to be an end? And then Bob would like scratch his, like his mustache and think a minute, look up in the air. And he says, uh, I don't know. I'll let you know. And it was like, <laughs> and then they shake, they shake his head. They walk, Edmund would walk away. And you know, it was, it was funny because, you know, Bob is a numbers guy and he could do that stuff. And he finished number seven in the world that year. I think it was, and he came back and over the winter, he had like a 377 on alcohol with a carburetor and this, that, and he changed everything. He changed his, he went to a bigger motor, went to two throttle stops so he could play front and back game and all this this other stuff. I looked at him. I said, Bob, what are you doing? You know, I said, you can't sell your product if you don't run into number. And he says, man, I said, I wouldn't even change the oil if I finished seventh in the world. And he said, "Uh, ah, you know, I just can't leave it alone. I said, okay, yeah, I I know where you're coming from on the can't leave it alone deal. So, but we've been doing it off and on. And then when I, you know, had to stop racing for a while. And, um, you know, but I've always been doing, trying the, the top end deal. So I could, cause I never really had a lot of money to build a big motor to go fast. And if I did, I knew I can't drive the finish line like these young people do. And, uh, so it's like, I, if I could take one thing away from me that, and put it on somebody else, let them, you know, if they're better at it, let them try it. See what happens. Uh, there's two strings that I want to pull on here, Chris, and I'll let you decide what direction we want to go first. I want to get deeper into your combination, the top end stop, the philosophy behind it. There's more to discuss there. And then you also mentioned that you had to stop racing for a while, which again, kind of goes back to being off the grid. Uh, for a couple of years prior to 2018. And I want to get into that situation and the perspective that it's given you. Which road would you like to go down first? I guess, why don't we just start with the with the reason I had to stop for a while? Sure. Yeah, that was a real thing about it. That, you know, And it seems like everything has happened at Virginia. When I won the divisional, it was in 18 at Virginia. <laughs> I won the, and then I won the national at Virginia this year. Mm-hmm. And then back in 2013, I was down there for the divisional race. My wife couldn't go. She had to work and uh, came out. I went first round. I won that round. When I came out, I got back to the trailer and I was doing something in the trailer and I started to walk out the trailer and I hit my head on the crown of it with a at the trailer door. I didn't step down. I just stepped out. And I had a hat on, bumped me, didn't knock me out or anything like that. And it was like, 
wow, that sort of hurt. Like I say, it did knock me out or nothing like that. So I just sloughed it off, went out, and I was walking around. Well, when I had second round, they called us, and I went up there, and I had to run the guy Jacks of Panic in the second round. So I get up there, and I'm in the car. Everything's fine. I put my helmet on, and now all of a sudden, everything starts getting wacky in my head. I get blurry vision. I started just hurt and all this other stuff. And I'm going like, wow, I, sh- I shouldn't even race, but you know, I'm tough, <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm going to do it anyway. And I, I lost anyway. So I figured I had a 50, 50 chance anyway. So, you know, but it, I did. So I got back, pulled the car into the trailer, got out and started, you know, didn't think much more about it. Got, got, ready to start putting all the stuff away. Well, all of a sudden I started getting dizzy and stuff. So make a long story short, I called my wife. She said, well, you know, because she's a neurosurgical nurse at Christiana hospital, you know, why she ever ended up coming with me. I, you know, smart person like her should have seen an idiot when she saw one, but you know, she's still with me, gave me some advice to do stuff. And I said, okay, so I drove home the next day from Virginia with the motor home and the trailer and the next went to work Monday. No, no different, but I still wasn't right. Something was wrong and she was watching it because she knows what to look for. So I guess it was like a, a day or two later, I came home from work in a half a day. I couldn't work anymore. I was getting dizzy again. So, Ended up, we went to the hospital and I had a CT scan, some other stuff. And we explained to the people and um, ended up in an incidental find that I had what was called a AV fistula, which if my wife could say it, she would tell you what it was. But it's basically an unruptured aneurysm in my left rear of my head. And unbeknownst to me that I actually had a brain back there, it was like, wow, that's cool. You know, that I have something back there that can get messed up. I've been called brainless before and, you know, I just sloughed that off. Yeah, proof to the contrary at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And they have pictures and everything. It says, you know, hey, he really, he really does have something up there. It may be not the size of a walnut after all. (laughs) So. Ended up, I guess it was about after having a bunch of different tests and, and MRIs and MRAs. And, and then I had an angiogram. And this is like I was 65 years old at the time in 2013. Never been to the hospital, never broken a bone, never had anything done. I was like the luckiest chicken in town, I guess you'd call it. So they went into the hospital and um, they were waiting to have the angiogram done. Finally, they wheel me in there, put me on the table. They give me the stuff to put me out. And they turn the nurses, they turned their back and they went over there and they're doing all this other stuff. And then all of a sudden I'm going like a couple minutes later, I, I piped up and I said, so how long does it take this stuff to kick in? And they turned around and they looked at me like I was from Mars. <laughs> they, they said, 
you're not asleep yet? I said, uh, did I sound like I was asleep? So ended up, there was two, two uh, uh, drugs they gave you. I think one was Verset and Vers- fentanyl or something like that. Well, it ended up they had to give me twice the one and four times the amount of the other one to put me out. And, you know, the doctors told my wife, she said, oh, God, he won't remember a thing. You know, he'll be so loony bins. It's like, you know, I'm going like, okay. So after the angiogram, when they flooded the dye and then took the pictures and, and all that stuff, the doctor came in and said, well, how, how do you think? And I said, you know, I said, well, you know, I was you know, doing pretty good because you have to hold your breath. So they flood the dye in there. And I said, I was doing pretty good till I hold my breath. And then I felt that warm sensation. And he says, you remember that? And I said, yeah. And, you know, he was, they, they, they just couldn't believe. So when they actually found out that they had to do the procedure, because he brought us in and he told us, he says, now you don't have to have the procedure done. And then he brought out that word that nobody likes to hear. But he says, but if you don't get it done and you do pop a vein in your head, if you make it to the hospital, you probably won't go out as anywhere near what you came in at, you know, other than the, the thing. So here you are, the guy that put off rotator cuff surgery, about to have <laughs> brain surgery, right? Right. And with the, the technology nowadays, they never had to open my head up which is you know, good for everybody because they went in through the, you know, your right leg. They went with a catheter up and you know, went in that way. And then what they did was they put epoxy in the veins that were ready to pop. And because they could only go in for so long, they did you know, the ones that actually saved my life because you know, I was on the way out, they said. And, um, so I said, okay, you know, that's, you know, whatever you got to do, you got to do because looking at the grass from the top side is way better than looking at the grass from the bottom side. So I, I had one done in 2013. I had another one done in 2014 and then had another one three months later in 2015. So we did all that. And my my daughter posted a picture of me at in the hospital one time uh coming out of the 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 being asleep and all and dave moan from nhra saw it because he's on the friends list and all that stuff well they took my license away from or put it on hold from so that i couldn't race anymore so i had to go through and once we got the you know thing because you still had that physicals back then had to prove to the people out in California that I was okay to drive and you know all that kind of stuff so got the license back but I still didn't feel right so I figured eh, I just don't feel like right racing so we'll just worry about something else so I tried racing one time in 2015 with the top end stop and I got down to the super comp circuit race not the divisional and I got down to three cars out of the, I think there was like 25, 30 cars or something like that. It was like a five round race. And I got down to three cars and I lost in the thing. And I'm going like, wow, that was, you know, that went bad. Well, when I got started to go back to put the car away, I started getting sick 
again, throwing up, lightheadedness, all the stuff. So I said, well, that's it. You know, no more racing that year. So I didn't race that at all the rest of 2015. Didn't race at all 2016. And I kept telling the family doctor, you know, I'm still getting the lightheadedness a little bit. And I'm getting this, getting that. Uh, balance issues. Can't really stand up without holding on to something. So I said, well, uh, he said, well, uh, why don't we have another MRI? It's been about two years since you had the last procedure. And I said, okay, that's cool. So I went in there, you know, get lay on the table. You hear the thump, thump, thump. They play the music and all that stuff. So he says, uh, I, when I'm leaving the place, I said, do me a favor, send this to Dr. Sadi at Christiana Hospital. And he was the one, you know, it was done at a Christiana Hospital facility. And he said, okay. So I guess it was about three days later, I get a call from Dr. Sadi. Now he's, probably in his 40s, in, as in, from Indian, India type thing. And he said, uh, he said, Chris, uh, you need to come see me. And I looked at, and I'm like, uh, what are you, just lonely or something? And I'm and like, <laughs> usually, you know, doctors can't take a joke. You know, they're just, but he said, no, eh, you really need to come see me. I'm going like, uh-oh, sounds like that butt word again. So went into him and, you know, it had changed a little bit. There was still blood flowing in the wrong quadrants or whatever. So they decided to do one more in June of 17. Well, this time they put something called platinum coils in my head. I mean. Now that sounds intense. I'll tell you what, my, my head is worth some money. About the only thing on my whole body is worth anything is my head. So they did this other, they did this thing. I woke up, all the symptoms are gone. No lightheadedness, no balance issues. I had even gone to sell the motorhome so it wouldn't just sit there because I figured after what happened in 15 that I was never going to race again. Mm-hmm. So I figured, you know, sell the thing, you know, I, I you know, just. I tried to sell the car. Nobody, nobody wants an older Quay car. And I'm going like, you know, it's a perfectly good car. So I said, okay, I'll just keep it. It, it don't eat nothing. It's, you know, out there. So then after I got cured, I, I'm going, I'm telling, talking to my wife. I said, you know, this is amazing. I said, yeah, just yeah. overnight, right? Yeah, what you'd been yeah. struggling with for four years is gone. Right. Yeah, it's gone. Everything is like, I'm going like, I'm going like, and I tell people now that like, until you have some kind of a issue that they tell you, you might not make it to, you know, or you might have this or you might have that. I mean, you don't appreciate anything as much as you do after that. So I, I come back there. The car has been sitting like two, three years. And I never adjust, unadjusted the valves. I never did nothing to it. I just let it sit there. I was, just didn't feel like working on it. So, and that's like you said, I, I ended up getting another motorhome and under the false pretenses that we were going to use it to go away. But don't tell my wife that. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, she reminds me of that. And because we've had it, the motorhome since 2017, 
until now. And she has, well, I should say this or not, but she has yet to stay in that thing one night. <laughs> it's been on zero non-racing trips. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you go through this, you've, A, got what I would have to assume is a whole new lease on life. And, exactly. And you shared with me a little bit at Indy just to change perspective and, and realize and how good we've all really got it. And that opens the door for you to get back into racing, something that you've always loved and basically assumed that you'd never get the opportunity to do it, to do again. Right. Yeah. So, and then and I like to say you, you even, you even said it, you know, I finished like 479th. I think you said I ran, I lost more rounds than I won. And that the last four races, I think it was the, uh, the ACO, the Cecil, forget what the other race I went to and then Dutch classic, I went, made like four. So I had like four grade points. And then I, you know, I, because the motor had been sitting and it had like about 300 runs on it by that time. So I took, we took it out, Gil fresh in the motor and I did the cylinder head over again and did all this other stuff, put it all back together. And <laughs> I started it up with the plugs I had in it for the last, almost three years, three or four years, and I never changed them. Go down to uh, Gainesville. I lost first round at the at the division race, and I'm going like, well, you know. So I started, you know, playing, change a little this and that, and ended up going six rounds to the down to three cars at the national event at Gainesville. I'm going like, and then Ray Miller Jr., his dad, he just – put an 18,000 package on me and I went like, see ya. I mean, wow. <laughs> I mean, shake his hand, heck of a thing. That was really nice, but I hope I don't have to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But that's the catalyst that really jump started this incredible season. Yeah. And then, uh, then came back home, went, uh, ended up going to my favorite place, Virginia. Uh, and since then I have one of those little noodle things. Well, I put that on the top of the door so that if I hit the door coming out, I hit the noodle like they have in the pool things. So that little protection there for that. And, um, then ended up going to the final and winning by about two thousands. I think, I think the, uh, the guy and uh, with the throttle stop in the top end and all that stuff. And I'm going like, you know, I've done one thing that I thought I'd never, ever do is win a divisional. I, I went to a divisional final at Englishtown back in, I think it was 95, 96, I guess it was. And I had to run a guy named Brian Source, who has a trailer. Yeah, dealer. I remember Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brian. And I had the top end stop on it then, too. But it was a small block. And I'm, and I'm going, we both leave. And he's like, from the time we left, because he had a big block, faster car, he's whomping me going down the track. He never even turned his throttle stop on. He just paced me all the way down. And I'm looking at him going like, oh, uh, what's going on here? And, and he goes down there, and he had a little bit better light, took the finish line. He ran eight. Be, we both ran under. I think he ran a thousand slower than I did and won the race. And I'm going like, 
wow, that really is not a good feeling that you get used up like that. So, but that was, that's the closest I've runnered up. And that and was because I was always driving a tractor trailer. I didn't have the luxury because the company I worked for, they wanted you to leave on Sunday to be at your first stop Monday, which is usually Chicago back then. And so it was like, you know, I didn't really have the luxury of being able to, you know, have anything to really, I guess I would say, not have something, someplace to be Monday morning. So it was like, you know, I always had something in the back of my mind going, uh, you know, if you go rounds, you're going to be late and then the people are going to, you know, you're going to get fired or this, that, and the other thing. So it's like, uh, you know, I didn't have total, like now being retired, I can, you know, basically come and go as I please. And I get there, I get there. If I don't get there, I don't get there. You know, no pressure, no schedule, no nothing like that. So way easier. Sure. So your 2018 season is, is one for the ages. You end up finishing sixth nationally, had your divisional win, had a runner-up nationally, a runner-up on the division side, ended up just four rounds away from the world championship with the four rounds behind Steve Williams who ended up winning it. And then I think what's really impressive is that you come back now in 2018 and in the current standings, I think as we record this year, 13th or 14th nationally, like definitely have a legitimate shot at another top 10 season. So it's not like this is a complete flash in the pan thing. And what's cool about it, I mean, your whole story in general is awesome. And that perspective and lease on life that, but just from a purely competitive standpoint, if I'm adding the the numbers right, you mentioned your age at various years a couple of times here. Now you're you're 71 years old. Is that right? Well, I'll be 71 in November. Okay, so I'm, 70 I'm years old. Seven. Yeah. In a it's originally a 95 model dragster, so a 24 year old dragster that you mentioned is capable of going eight O's at its best. So typically that would be a 890 at upper 160s player, right? Like 167, 168, somewhere in that range. You typically go 890 at 130 or less with the top end stop, right? Depending on the air. Sure. Because right now, like I say, now I've I've had, with the air being bad everywhere I go, I've had to adjust it so that, you know, the the top end creeps up a little bit. I want to get it back, and that's why I want to pep it up just a little bit so I can get back into the one low 120 range again because that's that you know just makes it that much harder for them to to judge it sure and it's a little bit backwards of conventional thinking because with your typical quote-unquote super comp setup the more power that you have throttle stop in the run early the more mile an hour you run in your case the more power that you have the earlier you have to shut off the throttle and actually the less mile an hour you run correct right so Let's just well, talk through. I'm not. I'm not that interested necessarily in the combination. Like we talked about it to to a to a on a broad extent, but the idea, like the strategy behind it. What is the advantage that you have going forty plus mile an hour slower than the average opponent? Well, I think the one thing that I, the reason I really do it is because, like I said. Too many things going on at the top end, you know, with me trying to judge, being able to drive the finish line, that kind of stuff. So, like I say, I, I 
put one more thing on their plate and then try to just dial the car, make it run, watch the air very, very critically. Because like I said, if, because I mean, sure, if you wanted to try and cheat, you could put the, um, the stop RPM on a chip and no would no one would be the wiser if you could do it, but I don't do it like that because of the setup. I have a a stop that my throttle stop is. I mean, this car is like 1995 technology. I said it's an it's an inline spring off air on stop. I mean, like the first generation of throttle stops, and I had. You know, last year when I got accused of doing something that I wasn't, they took off the body. Oh, we want to see it. You know, and I'm going to look. And they looked down and they're going like, uh, it's a 7AL2 box with a three-step. And that's the end of the ignition system other than a <laughs> magnetic pickup distributor. There's no plugging into you. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, you know, analog out the, you know, and Larry Wiggins, who's a division one tech guy, he looked at it and he says, yeah, that's analog. How the hell you can't do nothing. Um, I don't know whether they were looking for a so-called Maddie box or what they were looking for. But I said, you know, if you find something, let me know. Maybe I can make some money off of this thing. You know, if you find <laughs> something that's really cheating about it, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something. And like you said on one of your podcasts, you know, anybody that, you know, when I miss it, I miss it, you know, and that's the thing, because when I go to a normal race from race to race, like a lot of people, they can just use their, the numbers from another race. And, you know, and when I go to a race, I have to like start over from scratch because the different air conditions make different, uh, RPM on the stop down track. So it's like, I got to, you know, adjust that to get it where I want it to where it starts where I want when it cruises to what I want, and then that kind of stuff. So that's why a lot of times you'll see the car go like 902, 903, or something like that. Once in a while, I like under or I guess overcompensate and a car like it's very unusual that the car goes like 880 something on the first time run. And I mean, yeah, there, there are times where I guess I was down at Cecil County, I guess I forget what, what year it was, but I came out of the trailer and I went double Oh one, eight ninety with a one out of the trailer. And I'm going like, I'm poking my chest out by, uh, and I'm going like, wow, that was the biggest guess I ever had. <laughs> Take me inside baseball just a little bit. Like how far are you closing the throttle when the throttle stop activates? Well, see, that's the, that's the other thing. The, uh, I'm not going to pull a Sergeant Schultz and say, I know nothing <laughs> <laughs> type of deal. But when they came out with the ultra dominate, that has the linkage outside the carburetor mm -hmm. rather than underneath like the conventional dominator. That's what I used to have the old dominator and I couldn't shut the car down far enough hmm. to actually slow it down. So when they came out with the ultra dominator, I bought one of them in like late uh, 2010 when they first came out because it was still at the 8896, I think it was dash two or something. And 
basically I shut the back barrels completely off and I had the front barrel open maybe a quarter of an inch. Wow. Okay. So it's pretty well shut down. And what's your, like, obviously it changes a lot due to conditions and racetrack and things like that. But generally like what's the average time into the run that the throttle stop closes? Some right around half track. Okay. So you're five, five, yeah, something. Okay. And just coast the rest of the way on through. And then, uh, I'd assume that there's some variables in this too, but roughly what is your typical throttle stop ratio? Like how much time do you have to add to it to speed up a hundredth basically? I think the, the ratio is sort of like, like 0.145. I mean, there's, you know, there's times where it's on, you know, which is just the opposite of what everybody says that, <laughs> right. you know, injection, you want it on the longest carburetor, you want it on the shortest and that kind of stuff. If you, like you know, Gary Stinnett and all them people will tell you the that ratio. But I mean, I have it on there for like three and a half seconds sometimes, maybe more, maybe less. You know, it's, it's just depends. And you know, the, I don't want to tell you about the the back end of the stop because that's that's the secret. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> but, but I mean, but I mean, all you have to do is you know, and and like when I take a buy run. That's like the worst thing for me because you can hear all what happened. And, <laughs> right. and, and that's, that's why usually I, I don't like buy runs and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and like, you know, I was telling you out at Indy, I said, you know, basically everything is on the car for a reason. I mean, you know, a lot of people say, oh, what do you got them stupid front wheels on it? And this, that, and the other thing. I'm going like, well, there's a very good reason for that. And I'd really like to tell you, but I think I'd have to kill you then. <laughs> and, and people, you know, say, oh, and you run mufflers. And I really and, liked your explanation for running the mufflers, if you care to share it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you give my secrets away again. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't divulge anything you don't want to divulge. But well, I, it, it, just, it just makes good sense. Yeah, I mean, now these mufflers aren't as big as the other mufflers I had on the other. I had another set of downswips that were had a bigger muffler on it but they actually killed the motor a good two tenths of a second they were that restricted the guy out in arizona made them for ed and what they did they came out and they went forward and they the bend on the front to come back was too close and it didn't let the the gases flow enough and i could put a set of upswips on it and i gained like two tenths on the car without doing that thing you know with anything <laughs> so, so they, they were quieter. These aren't quite as quieter, as quiet as the other ones. So, but basically if anybody watches me, I'll sit there and I'll let you do your burnout first because I want to hear what you sound like when you do your burnout, because basically that's what you sound like when you're coming at me at 170 miles an hour or whatever, you know, and it's just, a, I've been in a truck tractor trailer for years. I can, I'm half deaf to begin with. My wife will tell you that. And, and then when I'm going to stop, it's pretty quiet down there then. And then all of a sudden here comes this, you know, loud, obnoxious car coming at me. And I, you know, it just gives me a little bit of an advantage. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, it's like, but that's, you know, 
that's the reason for the mufflers. I just, and I've always liked, I had them on my other small block car and they're the Flowmaster mufflers. And I, I just like the sound of them. Yeah, it sounds like a Mustang and all that stuff, but you know. <laughs> okay, so I don't want to uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but feel free to uh, to correct me if I'm speaking out of turn. But it's my listening to you talk, watching you do what you do. I feel like the strategic value of what you're doing is insanely smart. I mean, you give your you talk about your walnut brain, like it's. Um, <laughs> What we preach or what I preach all the time in, in this is bracket race and this is bracket race elite is self-awareness and understand your strengths, understand your weaknesses and think about a way to make your program conducive to what you do. And I think it's really inspirational and, and a testament to what sportsman drag racing in general, specific bracket racing and or superclass racing is, is all about because you having this success in a car that is by today's standards outdated that is by today's standards you know less expensive than you know the guy that's going out there going 890 at 185 mile an hour and you're a top 10 contender you're you're vying for the world championship now two years in a row and i think what's cool about it and again correct me if i'm speaking out of turn is that you basically step back from the situation and said okay look i don't have the means to go 890 at 185 or 190 or whatever the cool thing is right now. And I don't have the desire to do that. And if I go 890 at 165, these younger racers that have the finish line vision, like they're going to eat me up. And case in point, I don't, you name the opponent. It's, it's Tom Stalba, it's Kyle Bigley, it's Ray Ray Miller, whoever. If you go 20 on the tree and 892 wide open at 167 mile an hour, they are going to eat you for lunch. Correct? Exactly. If you make that same run at 127 miles an hour, they might still beat you, but you basically eliminated the perceived advantage that they would normally have as being the quote unquote better finish line driver of the pair. Simply because now instead of a 15 mile an hour discrepancy, They've got a 55 mile an hour discrepancy that no one can judge. So you're basically putting everyone into your element and saying, okay, if you're going to beat me, you're going to have to dial better than I do. And you're a pretty good dialer. I mean, is that kind of the general thought process behind it? Basically, yeah, because like I say, the friend of mine, Bob Kodadak from Family Software, he and I, we're, we're basically dialers. I mean, we... We, you know, he can drive better than I do, and he doesn't really drive super comp anymore. He doesn't run a super street. He had a little accident, and his uh, hands messed up on one side. So he can't – and he hasn't got back into a dragster for a while since the one he sold. And he and I, we've always been basically dialers that, you know, we try to put down a package, and if you can get in, great. If you can't get in, oh, well, that's good for me and bad for you. And – and like I say, you know, basically I drive or I, I build a car and build a motor that my wallet can understand. And, you know, because my wife, you know, it's not that I couldn't afford one, but it's just like, why? Sure. You got to slow the car down. <laughs> and like when I, when I put that motor in there at the 803, 165, I mean, I started looking at a ways, you know, and I, 
that's why I had those the other mufflers on it and the other pipes. I mean, that slowed it down two tenths. I said, okay, that's that's the one. The little wheels, they start the clocks quicker. That slows it down a little bit. All these little things that you know work in your favor. And it's not that I'm a genius or anything like that, but it's just like I had to figure out a way to do something that basically I know my limitations. And like people ask me, says, well, why don't you go to these big dollar bracket races? And I look at them and I said, if I want to donate something, I'll go to the church. (laughs) (laughs) Not the way I feel anymore. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not going to go there and donate and buy back and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I can't put out those O lights every time and, and all that, you know, that you get, and I was like, I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not geared for that. I'm consistent, but I'm not greatly consistent. To one final question, and then I'll, I'll take us into to rapid fire. I know you listen to the podcast, so you're, you're familiar uh, with the rapid fire segment. But just as more of a, a mentoring or an instructional type question, for the listener that's hearing you talk and listening to this conversation and says, that makes a lot of sense. Like that had always kind of figured that they weren't particularly competitive in whether it's super comp, super gas, super street. And it says, that makes sense to me. I'm in the same boat as Chris Gerritsen. Is there one piece of advice you could give the beginning superclass racer in reference to the top end throttle stop? Like, this is the way I'm going to go about this. I see the success Chris is having. I see the success Tim Nicholson's having. And you've, to your credit, made this a much more popular option than it was, say, three, four years ago. The top end stop was almost unheard of. You and Tim and a handful of others popularized it. Obviously, there are some some hurdles, some roadblocks in the way. Is there one piece of advice that you could provide? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, um, get ready for some, some heavy-duty thinking because, I mean, the – the way I do it now, I don't know about the under carburetor stop. I never had one of them. Kodak, he used to use one of them, and he was really consistent with it. But I haven't used one lately, or never that. Never did. I just used the one in line and all with the linkage. But I mean, you have to pay attention to the air, and because a lot of people don't understand about what the air can do to the stop down track versus it doesn't have enough time to do anything to the really change the rpm on the stop in the beginning sure but but down track i mean if like i say if the air gets a little bit better all of a sudden the the motor's going to make a little bit more power and you're going to go faster on the stop even if the carburetor said it the same thing and it's like so i have to watch that air really religiously and then sometimes i may have to make a judgment call on and like i did down at the uh the national event like i was telling you out at um at indy and then even in the article when kevin mckenna i said if people knew what i changed between the last time run and the first round when i had to run and i didn't know who i had to run but i mean they would have looked at me and said are you serious? You changed all them things and you went 889 with a zero. And I looked at, and it's like, you know, oh yeah, I'm a hero. 
And I'm like, nah. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I changed, I changed four different things. And it was basically a lucky guess. Luckily that Labouche, or he would have probably handed me my walking papers without a problem. But he went red by 10 thou, and I went down there, ran it. I got another time run. And then once I did that, I was okay for the rest of that day. And that's what, you know, what it made so that I could win that race. And then, like I said, the, the next two rounds that I had, the other two guys had O lights, and I'll just say I had a green light. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know they, I think they were in the 20s and something like that. And these guys had – and they just, the last two guys, they, they gave up on it. And I went, you know, this, like I said, the, the, the setup was the actual thing that they didn't do. And then the last three runs, I acted like I knew what I was doing. I had better lights than the other people. The car went 890 with a seven. The one guy that just had a 3000s package on, I think Otto was his name. He put a 3000s package on Chase Fonstock. And I'm going like, oh, this ought to be good. And he goes up there and I do my, I'm out there. I had a better light than he does. And I'm waiting for him because I know where they're sort of supposed to be when they, when we're getting down there. And he went by me like I was parked. And I went, wow, I wonder where he's going. And then my wind light came on. I'm going like, oh, well, who cares? And then in the final, I had the better light and and went 890 with a five. And like Reinhardt, uh, Reinhardt said, he said, basically, I gave the guy a 2000s window to get in. And at 170 something, I think he was. And that, you know, that, that's kind of hard. So yeah, I would I mean, say I, so. Yeah. You, know, you have those days where you, you know, and like, you know, I almost couldn't do anything wrong in spite of myself. <laughs> it's one of those kind of deals. You uh, you told the story about your first divisional final a couple of decades ago and the and the strategy that Brian Source employed beside you. Have you had anyone try to race you like that recently, where they're just holding so much that they're beside you so early? Well, I think Kenny Moses. He, I mean, he's a good bracket racer and you know good driver and all that kind of stuff. He he. I ran him one time and. I guess the first time he used me, I used him up, you know, because he came down there and he says, you know, next time I'm going to dial you like a 10 second car. And, you know, I'm just going to, you know, and that would probably be, but he hasn't, I haven't, luckily I haven't been you know, out against him lately, but I mean, it's, you know, and then I saw this weekend up at Epping, there was a girl up there that was, uh, was using a top end stop. See, it's and, the Chris Garrettson effect. I, I, I'm, I guess I'm making stuff popular. I, 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 <laughs> who to thunk? Huh? Yeah, who to thunk? And then one time I, I called Bobby from Quays and I asked him, you know, I guess it was right after I won uh, the first Virginia race. And I asked him, I said, man, I'm, I'm trying to make your cars uh, popular again. I said, have you had anybody call and, and want to get little front wheels on the car yet? And he, he says, no. <laughs> Uh, all right on that note let's transition into a little bit of rapid fire to close this up chris what is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning 
like everybody else, go to the bathroom. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, what is your biggest addiction? Hershey's pink milk. Hershey's pink milk. All right. Is that a morning ritual as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. My, my daughter got me hooked on that stuff. Oh, God. It's been like, you know, if I had the money I spent in Hershey's syrup to make it pink, I, I could probably build a big ass motor. <laughs> How about a fashion trend that you just don't get? And a lot of the girls ain't going to like this, but I'm, I'm not one and I don't, you know, I consider it, you know, because the thing, but tattoos, I'm just not into tattoos. I'll and be honest with you, Chris, I'm with you. Yeah. My wife every once in a while says that, uh, I want to get a little tattoo of this, that, and I look at her and I go like, why? I said, you know, it's, you're a nurse. You ought to know what the good and bad features of it are. So, but go ahead. Uh, we typically keep these real light. I'm going to dive off a little bit deeper, but, um, for Chris Garrett's and in your mind, what is success? Just being able to, to race still and, and, uh, that kind of stuff and had my wife save my from dying. That was a good, big, big, good success too. Yeah, that definitely qualifies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is why sometimes I wonder why she puts up with me. That's, that's the thing that, you know, that was the big question mark there. I mean, she's so smart and, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, maybe I'm just a work in progress or something. <laughs> Lab experiment. <laughs> Um, and this could be, uh, this could be racing related. This could be life in general. I take it whatever direction you want to, but, uh, your favorite memory. I guess, you know, the, the best thing, you know, like winning a divisional race, winning a national event when years ago, when I first got the car, you know, I mean, like everybody else, that's, that's their goal. They want to do that or rate bracket racing or win a, you know, win a big check or whatever. I guess the, the best thing I've ever, you know, is win a divisional race and then this year and win national event and just being not pushing up daisies. That's the other good one. Good stuff. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for being such a good sport throughout this for the last year and a half. Uh, we've had a lot of fun back and forth. It's great to finally catch up with you for a long overdue uh, appearance here on the Sports and Drag Racing Podcast. Uh, thanks for coming on with us, man. Uh, just a regular old racer that uh, just never thought that I'd get to, the, to what I'm doing now. You know, it's like years ago, it's like those things that those things are so far in a distance that if they happen, okay. If they don't happen, well, you know, that's one of them things, but uh, I'm just so fortunate that, uh, that I was able to achieve those two goals and, you know, something I could, I could quit tomorrow, but I don't really want to. <laughs> you get to that point where you get a little greedy about, you know, wanting another one or, and another one and another one. And I can understand how, you know, and I, I talked to Steve Williams at, at Indy and nicest guy, you know, and he, he told me, he says, yeah, I was really watching you. And I said, yeah, I really screwed it up at the last two races. So, yeah, try not to screw up this, uh, this year, hopefully. <laughs> it's not, uh, it's not too often. You can say you reach your peak behind the wheel or close to your peak at 70. So that's awesome stuff, man. It's uh, it's an inspirational story on a lot of different levels. Uh, I hope that our listeners enjoy it as much as I do.
uh, t- this has been a great, I mean, you know, meeting all the, you know, it's like before, like you said, you know, you don't know who this guy is. And now all of a sudden I used to try to be under the radar, you know, went around her here, there and there, you know, trying to do good, but yeah, it's now, not possible it's, these days. Yeah. No, not now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, you get your picture in the drag shirt, people know you, people, you know, send your Facebook friends requests and people, you know, and I, I've talked to people out in, uh, Western Canada that wanted to use a throttle top end stop guy mm-hmm. called me and it's like, you know, they, and I, you know, I don't mind, you know, especially out there cause I'll never race against him anyway, but you know, it's just, you know, I, I and I'm still, I want to stay the same as I've always been. And, you know, I try not to let it change me. And I think that part about the, what happened to me in my head and that kind of stuff is, has kept me pretty well grounded. And I, I just enjoy making the friends that I, and new people and you know all the kind of stuff. It's it's fun now. You know, it's it's become more fun now than it was before. Yeah, no, I can sense that perspective from you from the moment that we started talking. So, if there's one takeaway from this, that's definitely it. So, Chris, again, thank you, man, and uh, best of luck as you uh, as you continue the chase here in 2019 and beyond. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And you can do that on Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. Reasons to use BTE tune-up services. Number one, quick turnaround time. You won't be out of commission for half the season while you're waiting on your parts. Number two, unparalleled customer service and responsive communication. Reason number three, all brands of parts are accepted. It's not like they just work on BTE parts. Number four, BTE offers freight shipping discounts. They are located in the shipping capital of the United States near Memphis, Tennessee. And number five, reason to use BTE tune-up services. Quality work from knowledgeable technicians helps your system achieve peak performance. By now, I'm sure you know that thisisbracketracing.com is your online home to hone your racing skills. You're probably familiar with our premier membership community, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. If you are, you probably also know that it is not currently available. We only open the doors a couple of times a year. What you may not know is that our trainings, 300 plus trainings uh, over the life of thisisbracketracing.com are all available for purchase on the website. Those are trainings in a multitude of areas of competition, basically anything that you could think of as it pertains to sportsman drag racing. We have trainings dedicated to consistent reaction times. We have trainings dedicated to sharpening your skills at the finish line, to improving your mental game, to testing and tuning and the technical aspect of making your race car better. They're all available on thisisbracketracing.com and they all can be purchased by non-members of This Is Bracket Racing Elite. These are offered as single trainings and or 
a better deal is to purchase a master course, which includes a bundle of 10 trainings on a particular topic. To learn more about these and everything that is offered on thisisbracketracing.com, simply go to thisisbracketracing.com and click the Become a Better Racer link on the homepage. Banging on the door, bump, bump, bump until I get it in. Attitude like I am already winning in. Foot breaking in anything. Bottom ball before pretend. I'm rolling in the cutty, switching feet like Jerry Pennington. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.